How's it going, comrades? You are listening to Historically, a show where we debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in schools and on corporate media. My name is JD, and this is my co-host, Isha. Rohan, um, can you tell the audience a little bit about your um, what you do now and your work with MMT, Modern Monetary Theory, and just a little bit about yourself? Uh, yeah, sure. I'm a, I'm a lawyer. I was a practicing lawyer in family court for a number of years, but now I'm doing a, a legal PhD in the law of digital money. I work with um, central banks to design um, digital fiat currency systems, but I also um, am a director of the National Jobs for All Network and more relevant to this conversation, uh, one of the directors of the Modern Money Network, which is a uh, non-profit educational organization that promotes public understanding of money and finance, which uh, has led us into doing a lot of work around MMT to consider it to be the most realistic and, and sort of coherent way of understanding how money and finance work. Okay, um, for those who don't know what MMT is, can you give a quick one sentence, well, not one sentence, but a quick elevator pitch? <laughs> yeah, sure. It's uh, Modern monetary theory is a school of economic thought that uh, began as a heterodox school and now a heterodox economics school of thought and now encompasses a range of disciplines including law and history um, and looks at the way that monetary systems and money have worked in different contexts throughout history um, to try and understand uh, the sort of way that monetary systems work beyond the standard orthodox narratives that you learn in traditional economics textbooks. Uh, and you know, it, it particularly looks at the way the public monetary systems works and centers the role of the state and the role of law um, in monetary systems and connects money to things like labor and full employment and the legal system um, from the ground level of the analysis rather than sort of treating those things as uh, sort of secondary inputs that come in later in the story. So I would say it denaturalizes money. Is modern monetary theory only relevant for fiat money, or is it also relevant for when the money was backed by gold? So, yeah, the word modern there doesn't mean sort of the last 100 years. It means modern in a sense of any large, complicated society where people have relationships that go beyond face-to-face, kin-based relationships. So sort of the last 4,000 years is probably the way that modern is, is applied there. Um, and it, 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 it's a relevant way of analyzing a whole range of currency systems. Um, so one of the things that it looks at is the fact that even the most gold standard regimes, there was a legal system in the state enforcing the relationship between the monetary system and a particular weight of gold. So the idea that gold standard monetary systems are somehow separate from um, fiat-based monetary systems is actually uh, not an accurate way of looking at that monetary history. So yes, it, it applies to, or it's, it has a relevance to a whole range of monetary systems. It's not simply um, only applicable to sort of, you know, uh, floating non-convertible currencies like like we have today or only applicable to the United States in the 20th century or something like that. It's a, it's a much more general framework for analysis. Can you explain like when the, um, when the government started to get involved with money, like when they started to, you know, get like a tender? Uh, so a lot of the research that MMT builds on goes back to um, ancient Near East societies uh, in Sumeria and Mesopotamia. Um, historians like Michael Hudson have done a lot of work with the Peabody Museum at Harvard and other places with archaeologists. A lot of the early history of money uh, begins with the temple societies in the ancient Near East, in places like Sumeria and Mesopotamia, um, and economic historians like Michael Hudson um, and others at the Peabody Museum have done a lot of work on this period, as well as anthropologists like David Graeber. And essentially, the earliest monetary systems emerged out of the accounting systems of um, the temples that were the central social sort of organizational hub of those societies. Um, there would be different groups of people doing different economic functions, things like farming, um, merchant trading, um, manufacturing, and the temple would be responsible for coordinating those activities and would essentially keep large accounts of how much different people and different sort of units within society owed each other. 
and those accounts were a kind of relational debt system. So different people owed X amount of these units to others. And the way that those accounts got managed became the sort of basis of comparing different kinds of value. Um, other societies, like, for example, ancient Egyptian societies, were more based around a centralized um, sovereign power, a sort of, you know, public authority. They would often be religious priests in ancient Greece or um, some sort of king that had a religious inflection, like in, in Egypt. And they would be uh, responsible for taxing the public that would then have to pay back that tax, either in kind, in labor, or in a dollar unit or some sort of currency unit. Uh, if it was paid back in kind, then it was a very simple thing. You taxed people who had to give one month's worth of military service or you know, provide labor to build the pyramids or something. And then when it became a dollar unit, it allowed for a much more complicated economic organization because rather than having to work out exactly what you as a person could give the public authority, the public authority could just tax you, say, 100 units of taxes. And then when the time came to issue the tax credits, the things that you would have to pay back to pay your taxes, that's when it could choose what it wanted to buy. So you might not have anything to offer the sovereign as, as an individual subject, but you could do work for somebody else and that person could have something to offer the sovereign. So in that way, the monetary economy, the private sector, where people were trading between each other and buying and selling goods, emerged as a secondary layer out of the tax system. So the monetary system across different societies obviously evolves and changes, but in the same way that we've had some sort of conception of property law, some sort of conception of contracts across a lot of different um, civilizations or a lot of different societies we can see similar kinds of monetary dynamics emerging across a lot of different societies and then uh so when did they start using precious metal because um and i guess gold to be uh gold um as kind of the currency itself yeah so one of the really important things when when, when thinking about money is to separate out the idea of money as a measurement system from money as a thing. So if we think about something like a kilometer or a mile, for example, um, we can talk about miles as a unit of measurement. This thing is six miles long or we walk for six miles. But then in other contexts, a mile is also a thing. So there is a mile of road. There is a mile of piping. There is a mile of rocks or something. So depending in the context, a, a dollar or a currency could be a unit of measurement. We could have, we could value a whole range of things in currency, $10 worth of $10 worth of $10 worth of gold. Or we could have a money thing that was $10. Um, now, when we have a money thing that's worth $10, in, within that, there are two different ways we can look at it. There are some things that were created to explicitly be money. So, you know, a Federal Reserve note, the green dollar in your pocket, really doesn't have any other function apart from being money. Um, other things in history began as something else, but then acquired the property of moneyness. So they began to be used as money. So as an example, in my work, um, in, in developing countries like Kenya, they uh, had mobile phone minutes where you would purchase, you know, minutes on your phone. And once the phone company allowed them to trade them between each other, uh, they realized they could start using them as a form of currency. So people started paying each other in mobile phone money, yes, uh, mobile phone minutes. And that became a, a form of money in the community because it was acceptable to a large number of people as a form of money. So in terms of, in terms of coins, um, the earliest recorded examples are, I believe, in Lydia in Greece around 600 BC. Um, and they actually emerged as a sort of token representation of of oxen that were uh, part of large religious communal feasts. So the person who's done the most uh, interesting work on that, in my opinion, is Alla Semenova. She's an ethnic historian. She got her PhD at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, where a lot of the NMTers teach. Um, and what she looks at is the fact that the early, um, the early Greek religious societies there would have these regular feasts. I don't know if it was monthly or sort of semi-monthly, a couple of months, every couple of months. 
and everybody in the community would be required to contribute to that feast, whether it was, you know, contributing oxen or contributing other parts of you know, other things for the feast. And when the time came to have the feast, they would allocate different parts of the food that they'd made. The best part of the ox would go to the gods, and then the next part would go to the priests, elders, etc., etc. And the act of kind of giving a receipt for the, 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 the what you had contributed, and then getting that receipt redeemed when the time came to collect your food, would be a small little token, and that token eventually became the niche for that community. So it emerged out of a public religious authority. It emerged out of something that functioned kind of like a tax, although it had more explicit religious overtones than, than we would think of taxes today. And um, it emerged where the coin was seen as a substitute for the kind of underlying real oxen. Now, later in history, you have a whole range of different coins, but one thing that's very noticeable is that they're almost always stamped by an authority. They have the the face of the Roman Empire or the Queen of England or something on them. Or alternatively, the public authority of that region has accepted or identified certain coins that it will accept. So even when you have an underlying metal value that is sort of backing the coin, the actual value of the coin is still determined by the legal authority. Was there a specific reason people started using like gold and silver as uh, material to make coins in currency? Well, one reason is that it's it's got inherent properties. It's durable. Um, it can be transported. It can be melted down and remade. Um, it can be sort of hammered out and, and have something imprinted on it relatively easy. Um, you know, if you think about carving out a shell or something, you can't you can't melt that down and recarve it. So if you're a community where in a few generations a new king is is appointed or, or ascends to the throne, then the ability to take all the coins back and remint them with your head on them rather than the head of the previous deceased king is an important function. Um, the ability to transport it between jurisdictions is also an important function. So you had contexts where, for example, money that existed in Europe would be melted down from one jurisdiction and turned into coins in another jurisdiction, things like that. Um, and, and there's a great legal historian, Christine Dizan, who um, looks at the sort of turn to modern capitalism in, in the US and the UK um, in the 1600s, 1700s, and one of the things that she identifies is that um, up until that point, in in most of at least sort of Western sort of Anglo society, um, the act of making money, and by that I mean printing and literally minting money, not not sort of earning profit, but the act of literally making money, was largely within the responsibility of the state or the public authority, but that when they opened the gates to private actors so for example the mint opened its doors and said anybody who wants to get mints uh, coins mint can bring us the raw metal and we'll take a cut we'll take 10 percent or 20 percent but you can turn that metal into into money at a fixed rate um, that suddenly meant that a whole range of actors got into the game of making and that expanded the amount of money that was being created at a, at a much higher rate than the kings or the, the public authority was doing up at that point. So the act of turning money making from something that was a purely public procedure into something that was a sort of hybrid of public and private um, was, was sort of a flourishing of monetary creation. It came with a lot of problems, don't get me wrong, but you know, if you imagine there being one printing press that was owned by the, the Catholic Church and then suddenly um, everybody across Europe has a printing press, you think about the difference in the way that literature gets created. There was a sort of similar dynamic with the way that money was created. Um, and that didn't have to only be coins, didn't only have to be metal because, you know, there were people printing paper notes. Um, there were a whole range of banks that were printing various forms of bank notes that functioned like money. But for various reasons, including, as I said, the interjurisdictional potential of coins and, and their durability as a metal, et cetera, um, coins played a role in that, in that process. Um, so just curious, um, when the um, when the r r royal uh, mint opened it up 
to others to print their um, currency. Did it give those people like an unfair advantage or some kind of like, uh, to me, that seems like those were the people who then went and started banks. Like, is that the right way to think about it or no? Um, so there's a history of money transmitters and, and sort of goldsmiths that, that did a lot of this work. Um, not, not all of them became what we knew as banks. A lot of banks emerged as early um, in the US, particularly as corporations that were chartered um, by prominent business people. Um, often, my colleague Nathan Tankers has done a lot of research on this. Often, um, they would start a bank, a company, and an insurance company almost at the same time. And the various, those three entities would buy each other's liabilities. So the insurance company would get insurance to the company would sell that insurance to the bank, the bank would buy the insurance notes, sell the bank notes to the company, the company would use the bank, et cetera. And because these were important people in sort of early colonial America, which is a very small place, you know, if you think about who, who had power at the top, um, often these people would be the major lawmakers of their regions, governors or senators, et cetera. And they would pass laws that made those banks, their notes acceptable in payment of state taxes. So as I said at the beginning, that sort of ability to pay your taxes in a currency is something that gives value to that currency. One of the things that MMT is saying is that taxes can drive the value of the currency. If you know that somebody is going to put a gun to your head and make you pay something back, um, then whatever you need to pay that person is, is going to have some value to you. So the banks were often uh, created specifically to be providing tax receivable notes. Um, but you're right, the opening up of the doors to anyone to mint coins, and remember, these coins wouldn't just be minted as private coins. They would usually have the, the signature of the sovereign on them. But it was, sort of like, it was sort of like having people be franchised out. So these private actors would do the heavy lifting of going and finding gold and panning for it and creating gold mines, etc. And then they would bring the gold back to the mint and then their reward would be they would get to capture 80% of the value of that new money. And the difference was was called signage. So whatever the amount of the coin that was being created minus the, the sort of cut that the public authority took for, for the privilege of being able to do it, that cut was the, the value that the, the mint got to make on top of things. When did the idea of your uh, public authority or like federal government having control over that come into play? Oh, well, so that, that's really been a feature of public authorities going back thousands of years because the ability to determine what is acceptable in payment of taxes is the sort of essence of determining what is going to be the most stable valued money in the community. So one of the things that MMT is saying is anyone can create money. The challenge is to get it accepted. So, you know, if I create a Rowan IOU and give it to you, if you accept that as payment of some debt that I owe you, then that, that Rowan IOU is functioning as money. But of course, I can't use that to pay taxes. I can't use that to buy an airplane ticket. So the thing that is the most widely accepted form of money is going to have different properties and the kinds of private money. And it's that public authority stamp of approval that makes the difference there. And that goes back throughout history. So, you know, I talked earlier about temple societies. I talked about um, religious or, or, or kind of um, feudal societies where kings would impose taxes. But one of the other ways that money emerged out of public authority was what um, Randy Ray and Jeff Ingham and others have called Wehrgeld um, in Germany and other places, where if you had a private dispute between two private parties, and they were thinking about you know, going to war with each other or having a blood feud or something. Rather than having those feuds, they would take their dispute to a sort of public elder or a judge or something. And the judge would resolve the issue and give a fee or a fine or a punishment. So if you think of the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, in the book of Leviticus, they have all these things where if you steal you know, your neighbor's goat or if you sleep with your brother's wife or if you you know kill your family member in an argument or something you have to pay 
a certain amount of goats, a certain amount of sheep, a certain amount of shekels, etc. Those price lists, almost like criminal fees and fines today, became their own form of relative value, like like the early Mesopotamian examples did with, with the various economic functions of their society. So that's a sort of criminal law almost origins of the debts that we have to pay. So in that context, it started off where you would have to pay your brother directly if you, you know, killed their sheep or something. But over time, and this is what we see today, uh, you would have to pay the state. So if you, you know, break, break the law today, if you run a red light today, you have to pay a fine. And that $80 fine or $200 fine or something is, is a form of tax in the sense that it generates um, demand for your, for your money. And so in that context, the, the right, the power, the monopoly power to determine those prices is intrinsically tied up to the legal power of the sovereign. If you are the, if you are the sovereign entity able to basically make criminal law or enforce the law, you're also, in doing so, enforcing taxes and fees and fines and price lists that form the basis of the, the unit of account that that money is. Because, you know, if we think about a kilometre or a mile, that's a fixed thing. We can just look at the, the, the circumference of the earth and work out how big a mile is. But when we're talking about $10, we, on, we only really understand what $10 is in relation to prices of stuff, of cars, of bottles of water, of whatever else. And so the value of a dollar is a political thing. It's not just some neutral scientific thing. It's, a, it's actively made every day by the decisions of various entities, including the state, including private actors, to set prices. So we can, we can make something worth $10, but we can't, make something, we can't make $10 worth something without a bunch of politics. And that's where the, the sort of monopoly power of a state in, in enforcing law plays a really, really big power role. I know we're jumping around, so please bear with me. Um, uh, and w w in the final cut, it'll be really nice and smooth. But um, a lot of people still kind of think that the government uh, like gets um, what, whatever currency from your taxes, and then your taxes are used to spend for government programs, kind of like it's a business or like a household. Why do like where did that idea come from, and why do they think that? It's funny that that is such a such a um, pervasive belief, and I you know I had it for a long time as well until I started looking into all this stuff. But the really obvious thing here is that the money to pay taxes has to come from somewhere as well. You, you know, it's not like you sort of magically wake up and have coins in your pocket that you go to pay the taxes. So talking about taxes paying for spending doesn't start at the beginning of the story. We have to have a story for where the money paid taxes came from in the first place. And one way to do that is to talk about minting coins and things, but the other way to look at it is to look at where that power to create coins came from, which is why we end up back at the state. Um, I think one of the reasons it's confusing is because we usually think about the world in relation to our own position. Whereas what monetary systems require us to do is think about the world from a very different perspective. And the example I use here is if you are in a uh, football game and you're on the field, normally you think of your job when you're on the field in a football game to earn points, right? You know, you're on a team, you play football, you want to earn points. If you win, you've earned the most points. If you're a referee on the football field, your job is not to earn points. In fact, if you leave and you say, oh, I earned 50 points today, someone's going to look at you very funny because you've, you've not done your job properly. And so the reason for that is because when you're a referee, your job on the field is to give out points to other people, not for no reason, not just completely without any rules. There are rules. You have to give, them, give the points out in a way that makes sure the game gets played properly. But your job is to be a currency, a points issuer, not a points user. And so when, when we're sitting on the field and we're thinking about ourselves as a player on a team, if somebody said, stop thinking like that and start thinking like an, a referee, that's going to be a very big shift in our mentality because we've not spent our lives thinking like that. So that's the challenge when it comes to money is to stop thinking about ourselves like a player in the game who moves our piece around the board or who tries to accumulate points on the field and start thinking about ourselves as a game designer, as the game referee, as the person whose job it is to allocate and issue the points out.
according to a set of rules that makes the game work. So from a from referee's point of view, when they go home and have a have a day's well spent, they they issued a lot of points. They created more points than they took back. And if they've done their job right, they will have spent a points deficit in the same way as the government will spend a budget deficit. Because the only way that people on the field can earn the points is if somebody has created them and given them to them. So the only way that the rest of us can earn government currency is if the government creates currency and injects it into the economy. And we have to think about, we have to think about that from both sides. Okay, so well, why is this idea of deficits are bad and that like deficits are just like private debt? Why is it so pervasive in the U.S.? Or maybe it, it maybe it's, I haven't seen it be this pervasive in India, so um, or even in Australia. Um, but why? Oh, so why and how come it's been able to take like such a stronghold into mainstream economic thinking? So, I mean, partially, I think it's because the average person thinks about their own budget. You know, the, the, the classic idea of, well, it's bad for you to be constantly running up your credit card. Therefore, it's bad for the government to run up its credit card, which, as I said just a second ago, is a sort of category error. It's, it's mistaking two things for, that are not the same. Um, another part of it is that um, there's a very big concerted effort amongst certain right-wing groups and even sort of people who consider themselves to be progressive to have a government that doesn't use its power to create money because they believe that we can't be trusted to use that power properly. So rather than giving the government this power, they prefer a world where it ties its sort of feet together or ties its hands behind its back and the only entity that's able to engage in these questions is an independent central bank. It's supposed to be neutral and objective and driven by science. And its job is to keep the economy afloat. Now, I think that's wrong for a range of reasons. But that idea is a sort of idea that we can't trust ourselves. And so we need to restrain ourselves from even having this power in the first place um, in our toolkit. And, um, one of the most famous economists of the 20th century, Paul Samuelson, who was a Nobel Prize winner and wrote the, the most widely used textbook for most of the post-war period, he has an interview where he says, you know, I think this, this superstitious belief that the budget must be balanced um, is an important bulwark against anarchy. And if we were to lose it, we would have sort of chaos in the streets. So he acknowledges that this idea that we need to balance the budget is a myth. And if you're at the point where you're kind of watching interviews by him, you're probably one of the people in the know. You know, you're, you're probably one of the more educated people who are aware of all of this. But if you're the average person, he's saying it's a good thing you don't know this stuff because if you did know it, there would be rioting in the streets. Um, and, and, you know, other people have said this. People like Thomas Edison wrote an article in the New York Times um, near the beginning of the 20th century. He said the same thing. You know, he said, if we can create government debt, we can create money. Government debt is just a form of money because what is government debt? It's a promise to pay money. What is money? It's a promise to pay more money. You know, if you take a hundred dollar bill to the bank and you ask to get it cashed out, what, what are they going to give you? They're going to give you two $50 notes. So he said the same thing that makes a, um, a government bond good is the same thing that makes money good. But if people knew that, he said, then there'd be, there'd be a riot in the streets. Too. I think that, maybe there should be rioting on the streets just because yeah um because like we can have health care for all and you and jobs guarantee and stuff like that um before we get there um can you tell us like why did the federal reserve come into play as the currency maker and the monetary policy policy adjudicator and um and then we'll go on and talk with the, about the problems of it. Yeah, so I need to sort of start a little bit further back to get to that question because the history is sort of a bit tangled up. But, you know, early on, before, before the US Constitution, all the different states issued their own money. A lot of those states didn't back them by gold. They actually had pure 
fiat floating paper currency. So Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, others issued just a paper currency. The value of that currency was directly connected to the tax power. So there were debates in those early colonies where they would work out how much more money they could issue relative to the amount of taxes they'd be sucking back up and to, to, to keep the overall you know, demand in the economy from causing deflation. Um, when the US Constitution was formed, uh, a lot of those powers were taken away from individual states and put in the federal government. And one of the things the states did to try and get that power back was to charter banks. Um, it was a sort of legal um, trick where they said, okay, we're not allowed under the Constitution, under Article 1, Section 10, to create our own money. But what we can do is create a bank, and that bank can create banknotes, and those banknotes can function like money. So they said, if we're not allowed to create money, fine, but we'll create banks who will basically create money. And that was a very famous Supreme Court case about whether they were allowed to do that or whether the federal government had to stop them. Um, McCarthy, Maryland. And at the end of that, um, the states were enabled to create banknotes. Uh, so what happened is in, the, in most of the 19th century, you had this explosion of state level banks that were creating huge amounts of paper money that were usually bank notes or bank bills of exchange. And a lot of those monies were not considered safe. That is to say, even though the bank note said it was worth $100, people would only treat that as if it was worth $80 because they thought there was a risk that the bank would fail or the bank wouldn't be able to pay out in coins or in, in other forms of more safe money. So there was a process of what was called discounting um, that would go on where the banks would issue money, but then people would sort of make their own price for that money. By 1860, when Abraham Lincoln was the president and there was the Civil War um, starting to happen, they created a, a set of national banks that began to issue a uniform currency that was a national banknote, and that banknote was backed by the US government. So those banks held US government debt as the sort of asset. So if you imagine in the prior era, they held gold against the currency, now they held US. Yeah, the, the thinking was if the banking system collapses, it's bad for the rest of the economy. And so the Federal Reserve emerged as a government agency. It was created by an act of Congress and it was specifically designed to be a backstop and a coordinating function for the banking system. Now, the individual banks were still private banks, they were created with a banking charter, but they were still acting on their own private interests. But the Federal Reserve System was intended to be a way of recognizing the public interest in preserving the banking system. Now, fast forward a little bit until the 1930s with FDR, and you have the sort of fight within the Federal Reserve System between the regional Federal Reserve banks which were the sort of regional centers in the same way as the, the circuit courts exist today that sort of cover different regions of the United States and the central command, which was called the uh, Board of Governors. Uh, that Board of Governors basically asserted its authority from Washington, D.C. and said, we are the entity that gets to sort of dictate what happens in the whole Federal Reserve system. So up until that point, it was a little bit more decentralized. But in the 1930s, it became very centralized around the Board of Governors and within that, a certain committee called the Federal Open Market Committee. Now, in the 1940s, uh, after World War II, when they wanted to continue to run large deficits, but they didn't want, to, the, the government, sorry, wanted to run large deficits, but didn't want to pay a large amount of interest to do so because that interest was going to people who already held wealth and was causing uh, additional expense. So, you know, if you imagine you want to spend $10 on building a bridge, if you have to pay $10 plus 10% interest for 10 years, then that bridge becomes a lot more expensive. So what they, the Treasury did at that point was tell uh, the Federal Reserve to keep interest rates low. And the Federal Reserve had the power to do that, so it kept rates low. But in 1951, the Federal Reserve said, we don't want to keep doing this anymore because you're taking away our autonomy. We like the ability to change interest rates because that gives us power 
as an agency to basically manage the economy the way that we want to manage. The Treasury said, we don't care what you like. This is important for us. This is important for the national interest. And you have other tools to stabilize inflation and stabilize other things if you want to use them. So you could do things like qualitative credit controls, by which I mean just tell, tell banks not to lend to certain kinds of actors. No more casino loans, no more fossil fuel loans or whatever. Um, and that would be another way of you know, limiting inflationary pressure in the economy without having to change interest rates. So there was a fight within the government in 1951 between the Treasury Department and President Truman and between the Federal Reserve. And ultimately, um, Truman lost that fight. There's a great uh, article that goes into this fight called um, the Treasury Fed Accord, uh, a new narrative account by uh, two guys called Hetzel and Leach that's at the Richmond Fed website that you can check out, which I highly recommend. But basically what this story tells is that one of Truman's men double-crossed him. Um, they, were, they were having this fight in the public media. It was on the front page of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. And the way that the Treasury actually thought they'd win is they said, look, we'll give back the autonomy to the Fed, but we'll put our guy to run the Fed. So we'll give him back its authority, but we'll, its independence, but we'll install our guy at the top. But when they did that, the guy who they installed, William McChesney Martin, turned around and double-crossed the president, said, actually, now I'm sort of on the side of the Fed and I'm going to raise interest rates. So ever since 1951, there's been this understanding that the Federal Reserve gets to determine interest rates independent of pressure from the Treasury and the president. But that wasn't something that was built into the history of the Fed. It wasn't something that was intrinsic to the way that it was designed legally. It was something that emerged out of um, a bitter fight um, between two branches or two subparts of the government. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a long history of similar kinds of fights between um, different agencies within the government and competing factions for power. This isn't something that is unique to the Federal Reserve. Um, and it's not really contrary to what a lot of people think. It's not really about the private actors of the banks versus the public authority. Obviously, the banking interests play a very big role in the same way as, um, you know, the, the health insurance and, and pharmaceutical interests play a big role in the, in the Food Drug Administration, the FDA, or in the way that the telecom agencies play a big role in, in the FCC. Um, and certainly the Federal Reserve acts in a way that's sort of like a captured agency at times. But the, the fight that was going on that led to the Fed being independent was really a fight between two different visions of public power, not between public power and private power. Um, and so, so ever, since, ever since 1951 is when the idea that the Federal Reserve is in charge um, has been established. And now, today, uh, economists and journalists talk about that as though that was this enlightened, planned decision that was backed by sort of irrefutable economic logic that it just made sense that we don't trust the regular government and that we hand this power over and that the Federal Reserve is the only entity that has the expertise. Um, and that's, that's a sort of thing that's been repeated so much that it become its own dogma. But it isn't actually what happened historically. There was a bitter contested fight where there were two points of view and one side lost and the other side won and wrote Um, how, so, um, right now, the Federal Reserve, I guess, like, guarantees um, kind of relative currency stability, and in exchange, they just kind of accept a little bit of unemployment. Um, so, how would, um, like, how would we go about changing the Federal Reserve to, to just, like, have, like, a, it's for a more holistic economy that just doesn't, like, preserve status quo. Yeah, that, that's a great question. So the early, this, this idea that there is a trade-off between inflation and unemployment, so that if you try to get unemployment too low, you're going to have more and more inflation, started off in sort of the 1960s with this concept called the Phillips curve. 
people like Milton Friedman took it further with what he called the natural rate of unemployment, that nowadays has become a very technical concept called the non-accelerating inflation rate. And the idea is that there is a rate of unemployment. If you tried to get employment below that, you could, but the end result would be more and more and more and more. So if we want the economy to have as much equal employment as it can handle, but not have this inflationary spiral, we can only get to a certain amount of employment, but no, but no more. Um, that idea is possible because we gave the Federal Reserve a mandate to only create as much employment as it seems possible. Um, and the reason for that, again, isn't some natural outcome of an obvious economic logic. It was the result of bitter, contested politics. So back in 1946, there was a huge push for a full employment bill. After World War II, um, Truman tried to pass it, and, and it was a sort of outgrowth of FDR's New Deal. And the idea there, there was going to be in the bill the words full employment. The government was responsible for creating as many jobs to get to full employment. And what the conservative right-wing business interests fought and eventually won was that the words full employment were replaced with maximum. And that sounds like a minor difference, but you know, from a legalistic point of view, it had a very big difference. So from full, which they meant every person who wanted a job could get one, it was replaced with this word maximum that meant as good as we think is possible. And that enabled policymakers to lower their expectations. And there was a similar fight in 1970s with the, with the um, Humphrey Hawkins Full Employment Act. Um, and essentially now, the central bank is not tasked with ensuring every person who wants a job can get one. They're in task with providing as much employment as they think is feasible. And of course, due to the way the Federal Reserve is set up, the kinds of economists that get into it, etc., they are more concerned with inflation. than. And so if you give them that option to say, well, how much do you think is possible? They're always going to undershoot that mark. They are always going to be more cautious about um, inflation than they are about unemployment. And the reason for that is because inflation hurts certain people that are much more politically powerful than unemployment. When you have 5% unemployment or 4% unemployment, those last 5 or 4% are usually the poorest, the most marginalized, the most politically weak. Whereas if you have unacceptably high inflation, that's going to affect very rich people, very powerful people, very big corporations. So the idea that if you have to get it wrong, it's a lot better to get it wrong at the expense of the unemployed because they are not going to be as much of a pain in your ass as if you get it wrong on the right. I think that's a very big part of how the history of the Federal Reserve has come to, to basically let unemployment stay low. The other part is that they truly believe, people like Alan Greenspan would say this, that it's good to have people unemployed because that scares workers into not asking for more wages. So one of the good things about having unemployed people is it keeps wage discipline because workers always know that there's something worse than their current situation. You know, you think your wages are bad now, try being unemployed. And so the you know, people like Marx talked about this hundreds of years ago that that the unemployed serve as a reserve army of labor, always willing to take someone's job if they get too militant in their labor activism. And so this idea that we need to keep some people unemployed is as much political as it is economic. One of the things that the MMT group that I work with looks at when they talk about a right to a job for everybody is it's possible to maintain price stability by keeping a employed group at the bottom rather than an unemployed group. Now, if you create the wage at the bottom, as a sort of minimum wage, minimum living wage, say for example, $15 an hour, healthcare plus childcare plus you know, other benefits, then that becomes the benchmark for the rest of the economy. If a, if a private business wants to hire people, it has to be more competitive than that basic wage. But when the economy is going well, that basic wage doesn't rise, it stays fixed. And so that means that it serves as a anchor so that the wages don't keep rising and rising and rising just because you set that baseline. So what the MMT is talk about is instead of a Nairu 
they mm-hmm. create a NIBUR, which is a non-accelerating inflation buffer employment ratio. And the word buffer there just means that the amount of people that are in the job guarantee at the bottom can expand and contract based on whoever needs a job. So in, in good economic times, maybe very, very few people will need to get to use the job guarantee program because there'll be other jobs available for them. In bad times, more people will go back to the job guarantee because there'll be other job available. But in both contexts, the job guarantee serves to be a state force at the bottom of the wage system. And that is a way of keeping people involved in employment without causing that risk of a spiral price that the, the regular economists are so afraid of. Okay, um, I know we have to go, but could you stay for five minutes to answer one more question? Sure. Okay, um, so what, like, in order to get, get the Federal Reserve from where it is now to what you're envisioning, what are the reforms that need to happen? Yeah, a couple of things. One is that um, a lot of the MMTs don't actually think that the Federal Reserve has the tools right now to create full employment. It isn't actually able to stimulate the economy um, in the ways necessary to ensure that everybody has it. So it can currently change interest rates. Um, it can buy certain kinds of financial assets. But one thing it's not able to do right now is simply hire people, pay people money to do work. That is still the role of fiscal policy. So one thing that we need to do to have a genuine job guarantee or a full employment economy is empower fiscal policy to actually pay people to do at whatever amount is necessary. And that's why we need to get over all of these superstitions and myths about budget deaths. We need to be not afraid to spend as much money as we can to get to full employment because it's always better to pay people to do stuff productively than to be unproductive and sit at home, etc. Um, but in addition to that, we need to actually change the legal mandate of the Federal Reserve. And this is why it's important to remember that the Federal Reserve is a creature of Congress and a public agency, um, not just some private actor acting on behalf of its banks. It has a statutory mandate that was created by congressional legislation, and we can change that mandate. In the same way as there was a fight to create maximum employment, we can change that and say, no, you have a mandate to have, say, for example, price stability, but not by causing unemployment. So we could change the Federal Reserve's mandate to say, you have a mandate to provide price stability, but that attempt to provide price stability must not undermine or come into conflict with the other obligation of the government to create full employment, by which we mean a guaranteed job for everybody. And if you did that, if you, if you change the law that governs the people who run the Federal Reserve, then they would have to follow that. Or, or you know, they're violating, <laughs> they're violating their mandate. You can do that. And in that context, they would get creative. I guarantee you, the people who run the Federal Reserve would become creative and find other ways to keep prices low in the economy without, without balancing the economy on the backs of the unemployed, which is how they currently do it. So we just need to take that option away from them because as those fights in the 1940s and the 1970s happened, as the people who fought those fights in the right wing knew, the minute you, you, you open that door or you unlock that door, they're going to open it and walk through it. The minute you give them the opportunity to blame the unemployed, they're, they're likely to take it. So we just need to take that opportunity, that option away from them. Say, whatever you do, you can't do it by leaving those people unemployed. You know, the, the example that I use for this is guaranteeing children a right to education. If we told the Department of Education um, that they didn't have an obligation to give every child an education, but only as many kids as they thought they could handle, then I think you'd see over time that the Department of Education would start suddenly saying, well, we, it's just really hard to teach these poor kids in in low-income communities, so you know maybe they maybe they can't be taught. Maybe it would be just it would take too much resources and too many over time. So you know you told us to teach as many as we can. Well, we think 95% of kids is the best that we can handle. Luckily, we don't do it like that. We don't tell the Department of Ed, well, near enough is good enough. We say you have to teach them all, 
and you have to keep working at it until you are teaching them all. And that sets the standard that they have to meet. So that's how I would do it at the Federal Reserve is I would set the standard is that they have to ensure that everybody has a job. We would create the appropriate fiscal policy to do that. And then we would change the Federal Reserve's mandate so that whatever responsibilities it had towards price stability, et cetera, would not be in the way of that for employment. Okay, um, that makes so much sense. Um, do you have anything else you'd like to add? Um, I, I, I know I'm keeping you over, but any last minute thoughts, anything, um, any websites people need to check, like anything you want to add? Yeah, sure. I mean, I just, one thing I'd say is this is the start of all of these ideas. You know, this isn't supposed to be um, encapsulating everything. It's a large, complicated body of, of research and a large, complicated set of ideas that all relate to each other. As I can show, they, they all kind of build on each other. So if you're interested in learning more, check out our website, modernmoneynetwork.org. Um, check out neweconomicperspectives.org. Um, check out all the various other MMT websites online. Feel free to reach out to any of the, the people who sort of you know, are, are leading figures in the MMT world because it's a there's a lot to learn, there's a lot to understand here, and we're we're ready to talk and, and, and we'd love you know more support and people to get on board because we think this is some of the biggest issues of our generation and you know it's not just about economics it affects the way that politics is is unfolding right now and and has the, has implications for a whole range of issues. Um, things like healthcare for all and, you know, saving the planet from climate change and things, we need to be able to understand how how money works and how employment and production works to, to address those problems. So please, please join us and please uh, you know, stay involved. Thank you so much for joining us, Rohan. Uh Thank you for listening to Historically. 